previously on Darkwater Podcast. Police say they are only beginning their investigation into the two decomposing bodies discovered across the street from each other this week. She says the attacker cut Megan's hair, but her daughter couldn't see who it was. Abby Lynn Patterson was last seen leaving her home here on East 9th Street a year ago today. Tonight, a special edition of our program examines Robeson County, a place where poverty, distrust, and violence have become a public issue. When you've got a fragmented county this way, uh, everybody's pulling against everybody else. Welcome back. We hope you enjoyed our jump back in time on the last episode. But now we're back to the cases that started the podcast. But before we begin, we just wanted to talk quickly on our sort of hiatus we were on. So I teach English full time, which takes up the majority of my day usually. I'm a full time video producer. Just balancing life between full time jobs, uh, a podcast and a documentary is just a lot to handle for us. So we appreciate everyone just sticking around with us and just being patient. Yeah, definitely. Um, we are just two guys working on this without a team. So as Nick said, we appreciate the patience, but now we're back to it to bring things to a close. And Nick mentioned we're doing a documentary alongside the podcast. We've been collecting footage on that for, I think, around two years now. So hopefully whatever interest that's been garnered over the podcast can transfer into that project when we get there. And we'll be speaking more on that as we bring the podcast itself to a close. Yeah, we really appreciate the community's input to everything we've done so far and just the support from everyone from throughout the world really we hit uh number 83 on the top 100 podcast in the world in true crime so that's a feat of itself and we couldn't have done it without you guys so thank you for sticking around and hopefully with all this traction in this case that we can finally bring justice to this small community and maybe kind of inspire other small communities like Lumberton to kind of hold their justice system accountable. Yeah, exactly. Because really, we're at the end of the day, we're just examining one town in a very problematic nationwide trend with how these cases often go. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of other similar cases to this where it's just like a small town community kind of polices itself and they kind of live by their own laws and they have their own ways of justice and yeah, there's no real equity in that community as far as how the law is used to defend um, all demographics of people. That's just not the reality. And not to take anything away from the individual cases that we started the podcast with, but the institutional issues that we've discovered along the way are just as awful to me. I completely agree. And it's not just a localized thing like we were saying. It's, it's everywhere throughout the country. And until we hold the people that are essentially enforcing the law until we hold them accountable, there's not going to be a lot of justice served in small communities like that, or at least to a degree that the community feels like justice has been served. Yeah, I think people are only beginning to see this trend as we get documentaries on specific cases across the country. And I think we're only scratching the surface as far as understanding how bad it truly is. But we'll be talking about all this and more when we wrap up the podcast itself. And if you have any thoughts on it, we'll be doing a Q&A episode coming up, which we'll talk about more at the end of this episode. So if you want to participate, we'll give you some info on how to do that.
In April 2019, the cases of Kristen, Rhonda, Megan, and Abby seem cold roughly two years after they happened. There were no updates from law enforcement, at least publicly. Many of our questions went unanswered, and the families haven't learned anything new that made for promising leads. And Nick and I were still processing the overriding theory regarding the woman called S, killing Rhonda and Kristen for stealing drugs. Megan for knowing. And as for Abby's disappearance fitting into all that, it seems plausible since it happened just down the street, but any verified connection is left out there to be found, if it even exists. Then, we came into possession of something we were never meant to have. It breathed new life into the cases, at least from our perspective, but it also brought up an ethical dilemma. We were sent audio of a meeting leading up to the second anniversary of the crimes. A meeting between the North Carolina State Medical Examiner, the FBI, the SBI, Lumberton PD, and the family of victim Rhonda Jones. An online sleuth from one of the Facebook groups we referenced in a previous episode was working to obtain information related to the various theories for the family of Rhonda Jones. However, they eventually seemed to reach differing perspectives on what was helpful for the cases or just sensational, and they severed ties. So out of respect for the family and previous sources of reliable info, we aren't going to discuss that situation any further. Other than to say it seemed to have affected the family's relationship with Raleigh, North Carolina news anchor Russ Bowen of CBS 17, which is unfortunate due to the light he was shining on the cases. And he actually recently uh, won, I can't remember what exactly the award is, but he won an award for his podcast on the cases 32 Degrees. There haven't been any new episodes recently, but we've shared a lot of the same endeavor as far as similar questions we're trying to both answer, or at least we were both trying to answer them at one point in time. And Russ also broke the news about the sexual assault kits not being submitted. Yeah, they, I believe it was 20 months was the time frame in between when they were obtained and when they were submitted to the state lab. And to cause further conflict, the same local sleuth working with the family decided to go against their wishes and sent audio of the meeting we're going to discuss today uh, with the various agencies to Nick and I. Because of our relationship with the Jones family and prior discussion with a member, we've been allowed to cover some implications regarding the audio and assign a narrative to its content. But because of the information that can affect the integrity of the cases or potentially threaten successful prosecution of a truly guilty party, due to bias and morally can't share the full content of the recording. Legally, we could, and maybe one day you'll hear it the right way, but we're not going to burn bridges we form for a good cause just to play on the voyeurism that's pretty much inherent in true crime. And while that might be disappointing for many of you, ask yourself, what do you care more about? Justice in these cases or simply hearing the recording? Depending on your answer, you might want to evaluate your interest in true crime, these cases and at large, and what it says about you. Anyway, here's the story of the meeting. Sherlyn, Rhonda's sister, and Sheila, her mom, walked into the office of the medical examiner in spring of this year with various questions. Some of the questions they had were when and how was Rhonda killed, based on what the autopsy and toxicology could offer. Was there more detail to learn past the words on the page? And from an investigative angle, what leads were being pursued? What new insights could be offered between the family and the various agents and detectives? The family sat down with all the involved, and the medical examiner immediately started answering questions based on portions of the autopsy the family highlighted before the meeting. 
They got a few answers, but for the most part remain in the gray on what particular event or action led to Rhonda's death, which to remind you is listed as undetermined officially. Law enforcement couldn't answer when the fingernail clipping results would be available from the lab. Keep in mind the sexual assault evidence kits that we just mentioned earlier that yielded no results weren't submitted into the lab until 20 months after the original three death investigations started with Rhonda, Kristen, and Megan. And just to remind listeners, the reason we even know about the sexual assault evidence kits and the delay in their submission to the lab is the kidnapping, rape, and murder of Hanya Aguilar. Potentially, that could have been prevented if her alleged killer's DNA had been properly handled uh, years ago in 2016 in relation to another rape. So that was sort of the opening of Pandora's box to this entire issue. But continuing, as far as the inquiries from Rhonda's mom and sister, The medical examiner was firm on the science of Rhonda potentially dying due to a cocaine overdose, but just as definitive that it could potentially not be the reason. Her mother remained confident she was murdered. Given her level of use, her mom was certain in her mind that it wasn't an OD. The medical examiner went further saying if not for the curious circumstances around Rhonda's death, as well as the amount of decomposition, she very well could have been listed as a cocaine-related death. Law enforcement did clarify, though, that they will be approaching it as a homicide investigation, nonetheless, despite the undetermined death listing. Yeah, and that's a interesting point, because while it is listed as undetermined, clearly law enforcement continues to look into this from the premise that there was foul play. Um, and sifting through the details of this conversation, it was, very, it was a very clinical yet grim procedure with the occasional burst of emotion from the family, as I'm sure you could imagine. There were marks behind Rhonda's ears and cuts on her chin, forehead, and back. The medical examiner said verbatim, she's probably been in a fight. Later stating that those particular injuries were nowhere enough to lead to death. Interestingly, her lips and mouth weren't damaged. She had an open wound on the inside of her elbow, no issues with the brain nor skull. Many more nuanced and difficult to visualize notes were related to the pull of gravity during the decomposition process during her extended time in the trash can. There was also a post-mortem neck cartilage fracture, the thyroid cartilage specifically. If it helps, that's basically around your Adam's apple. Maybe it was from being dropped in the trash can, a prior fight, or asphyxia, strangulation, which couldn't be ruled out in Rhonda's case, in addition to Kristen and Megan. They all shared that commonality. On the medical examiner's side of things, there was one last interesting note. Rhonda's remains were not subjected to an entomological test, meaning there was no examination of how the science behind insect activity in her body could yield forensic clues. And not to get graphic, but if you've listened to previous episodes, you know that's a very common thread with all three women. There was no explanation of why this test didn't occur. Another perhaps crucial, perhaps trivial piece of evidence neglected. If I'm wrong, do any experts out there have any reason for the omission of this testing? Feel free to email or call us using the info provided at the end of the episode. The fact that the blanket Kristen was found in was destroyed in the medical examiner's office at the request of law enforcement never came up, but they did say they will be having a separate meeting with Kristen Bennett's family in the future. Which I understand, different family, different victim. I wonder if it will come up then. And just to elaborate on that blanket issue, uh, you know, early on, we've talked about the fact that the blanket she was found in was destroyed at the medical examiner's office, but we've never received that answer 
on why a piece of evidence would actively be destroyed at the request of law enforcement. That's been an inquiry in our minds this entire time. Moving on to the investigation side of things, law enforcement was made aware that Saturday, April 15th at approximately 5 p.m., Rhonda was last seen outside PJ's convenience store, a recurring fixture throughout the landscape of this podcast because of its location in East Lumberton and its close proximity to women who've met their ends mysteriously and violently over the past decades. So she's supposedly seen there three days before she's found, a short distance from that particular store. This alleged sighting led the family to fret again about something they have long feared, that Rhonda was killed on Easter Sunday. She was found three days after she was last supposedly seen. It was confirmed that Rhonda had fought the woman called S, someone we've discussed in episode four at length as far as the theory concerning her involvement with Rhonda's death. But again, anyway, it was confirmed that she fought the woman called S several times leading up to her death. The name of this woman, as well as her accomplices who allegedly took the lives of Rhonda, Kristen, and Megan over the supposed drug theft, were nothing new to the detectives and agents. They were well aware of the most repeated theory surrounding these cases. So that same idea that we covered in episode four, law enforcement is well aware of that premise. They frustratedly recounted the cycle of tracing the story back to the people who are supposed to be tied to the woman called S. Anyone they interview repeatedly takes back to what they said or refuses to speak. We know this from previous email conversation with Shelley Lynch of the FBI, that this has been a hindrance of establishing a clear timeline of the women prior to their deaths. Many in Lumberton claim to know what happened when speaking to the family, but none of them have chosen to approach law enforcement with the first-hand knowledge. For the record, Nick and I coordinated with the company hoping to develop our documentary on these cases to gain background checks pertaining to the woman called S and her supposed accomplices, also mentioned in that theory. Despite knowing they all had an extensive record, the company reported back that the checks yielded nothing, maybe indicating that their records had been sealed by law enforcement. In fact, we know that recently all the individuals in the theory were in prison for convictions not tied to these death investigations, all with very high bonds. Certain people close to the case believe and hope they're being questioned unrelentingly regarding what happened to Rhonda, Kristen, and Megan. However, law enforcement wasn't honest in saying that there was information they couldn't even currently share with the family. They noted that communication could have been better in the past, and they vowed to step it up including some investigation collaboration with the family we can't elaborate on yet. And yeah, that's an example of some of the details in this audio that we're not going to just throw out there because we don't want to be the reason that someone can claim they're not getting a fair trial if these people ever are brought to justice. Just to clarify our reasoning and not sharing quite everything. And we also wanted to give you what we can regarding two investigative leads discussed. There's a man that Rhonda would frequently stay with in Lumberton, crashing on his couch to rest up after several days of succumbing to her addiction even while sometimes he told her family she wasn't there. He went so far to tell the family that she was hanging out with a woman in Lumberton as they were looking for her sometime between the last time they saw her, April 3rd, and when she was found, April 18th. The family later found out that he was claimed Rhonda had moved in with a woman in South Carolina. It didn't add up. Sparking even more interest, after Rhonda was found dead, the man she would stay with wanted to move back to South Carolina after 20 years of living in Lumberton. When he was asked why by Rhonda's family, he simply replied, it's just Rhonda. 
Among the many that have repeated the woman called S theory to Rhonda's family, one anecdote in particular stands out. A local claims she overheard the woman called S threatening another woman over money she owed, saying if she didn't pay, she'd quote, put her ass in the trash can just like Rhonda, unquote. Another young local girl told the family while distraught she knew Rhonda and Kristen were killed in the Blue House on Peachtree Street at the same time before Rhonda was moved to the trash can across the street and Kristen into the gray blanket into the TV cabinet within the home. In one last strange twist not tied to the audio in the meeting we've been discussing, we also learned an odd connection from the sleuth mentioned earlier in the episode, the one from the Facebook group that ended up having issues with the Jones family. A separate man we've never discussed before with an eccentric Facebook personality and strong opinions about religion and how women should behave, referenced Rhonda in a post on February 2nd, 2017, just over two months before Rhonda met her end. The post was a picture of the novel, The Purpose Driven Life, What on Earth Am I Here For? by Rick Warren. The caption with the pic read, Day 33, Seven Days Remaining. Yesterday, I had an unexpected visit from my Native American friend and her friend who blessed me with this incredible book years ago. Thank you, Rhonda Jones, for trusting me with this incredible journey. I am forever grateful. What on earth am I here for? Coach, I love you back unconditionally. And again, that was the caption that went along with the picture of that novel he shared. Apparently, he had been in the process of posting the pic of the novel for 40 days. The extent of the procedure in the Religious Life Guide book based on the author's idea of the Christian God's five purposes for humans. It's also said the man posting the novel, who knew Rhonda, shared the phrase Tata, it's spelled T-A-T-A, with her when interacting via social media. We were told through family that Rhonda had a tattoo bearing the same phrase on her leg. If we've got that correct based on the last time we checked, but is this actually related to her death? Who knows? Between the woman called S theory not giving credibility through the first-hand accounts to law enforcement, and the other rumors and eerie circumstances surrounding these cases, as has been the trend since we started the podcast, every answer only begs deeper questions, and it seems to only get more complicated as we go along. Yeah, it's quite the enigma at this point. And bouncing back to the meeting notes one last time, I'll leave you with two quotes that represent the dichotomy of the law enforcement effort, despite frustrating dead ends, and the resolve of Rhonda's sister in the face of this challenge. Detectives and agents in the room stated, this isn't a cold case, that they were actively working on leads and later said they wanted to charge someone. Sherlyn, Rhonda's sister, responding to the idea of the community's fear of talking to law enforcement in order to bring justice, simply said, they can't kill us all. And that's our story. That's what we can share from the audio of that meeting. And maybe one day more of it can come out. But for now, again, it's the family's wish that it doesn't. And we also don't want to harm the integrity of the investigation in any way. So as we wrap up this season, we have a finale in mind. But before we get to that, we do want to cover that question and answer Q&A episode that we referenced earlier. So if you have a question... What we'd love for you to do is call in at 919-307-9331 and leave it as a voicemail on our Darkwater hotline. Or if you don't want to leave the voicemail, you can email us at darkwaterpod at gmail.com. Or if you want to be anonymous, feel free to send us an encrypted message to our email. You can remain anonymous and we keep our sources close to the chest. 
want to thank Justin from Moonside for the awesome score throughout the season and in this episode. You can check him out at moonsidesound.com. Definitely. Thank you to him. And thank you to all of you for listening. Um, it, it was cool to see the number of listens growing, even while we were in that hiatus we talked about earlier. And we're looking forward to bringing it all home for you. And maybe eventually one day, end of this season or not, there will be more resolution on these cases. And hopefully some of the issues we've uncovered along the way in our home state and abroad. Agreed. Yeah. We're, we're doing this for justice, not just in Lumberton, but in general. People should be held accountable. This started as a, as a curiosity, but now with all we've found, it really seems necessary to bring to light the ways in which we're failing people at the bottom of our society. Again, hit us up for the question and answer episode. We want to hear your thoughts, and that could be regarding anything from this season. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review on Apple Podcasts. Five stars if you like what you're hearing. Uh, We'd really appreciate it, and that helps more people find out about the podcast and these cases. And if you have any questions or comments, as we've mentioned, please hit us up at darkwaterpod at gmail.com or call us at... 919-307-9331. Thank you. Goodbye.